Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, listeners. This is the first episode of Season 3, and I have some great stuff planned this season. People and places and events and co-hosts and interviews and anything else I can include to help make hearing Chicago's history even more entertaining. Thanks to everyone who checked out the extras episodes over the last few weeks. Those have been much more popular than I anticipated, so I will certainly do more of those this season. And now. During a recent trip to Chicago's Chinatown, I stopped by the Chinese American Museum of Chicago on 23rd Street, just west of Wentworth. If you've not been there, I highly recommend it. The staff was great, the displays are well curated, and I enjoyed an audio-video presentation not just once, but twice. That trip inspired today's episode's topic, Chicago's original Chinatown, 1870 to 1912. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Chicago locals and visitors to Chicago have made their way to Chinatown, south of the Loop near Wentworth and Cermak Road, for over a hundred years. It is a bustling area most days, and since its development starting around 1911, it has grown not only in size, but also importance in the history of Chicago. In contrast, less than two miles north is the 400 block of South Clark Street, an area that in 2012, Chicago Architecture Magazine called, quote, Chicago's worst block, labeling it a time capsule of the worst kind. 140 years before that, this same block was home to Chicago's original Chinatown, where early Chinese who came to the city found a community in which they were hopeful they could prosper. Now, before we get too far ahead in discussing Chicago's early Chinese population and the original Chinatown, it is important to get a brief overview of the history of Chinese in America. After gaining independence from Great Britain and the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, the first American ship, Empress of China, arrived in China in 1784 carrying silver and 30 tons of ginseng returning to the States with tea and silk. Early trade with China by other countries in the late 1700s and early 1800s was a bit of a one-way street, while Great Britain and the U.S. were eager to receive teas, silks, porcelain, and other Chinese goods. China didn't always require much from the outside, resulting in a trade imbalance. To balance that trade, Opium was being imported into China in large quantities, mainly by the British by way of India, against Chinese law. The result? Millions of Chinese became addicted to the drug that up until then had often been viewed as a recreational drug. In 1839, the Chinese government stepped in, burning roughly 1,400 tons of the opium that had been imported in order to stem the tide of this out-of-control situation. This was one of the catalysts for the opium wars in China, the first occurring between China and Great Britain from 1839 to 1842, and then a second opium war with China against Great Britain and France from 1856 to 1860. Now, 
I realize that I'm simplifying the opium situation due to time constraints, but if you're interested in learning more about the opium wars, I'll have links in the show's notes. The U.S. Census in 1840 reflected a population of 17,069,453 people. The breakdown, 14,195,695 free whites, just under 2.5 million slaves, free colored, 386, 303,000, Indians, not included, and four Chinese, four Chinese. China in the 1840s, after the chaos of the first opium wars, also experienced severe drought, flooding, and famine. It was a time of economic uncertainty and extreme poverty. The government of China was falling apart. In 1850, the Taiping Rebellion began, a civil war that spanned almost 15 years and resulted in, by some estimates, 30 million deaths. The opium trade and the upheaval it caused was a significant factor in that conflict. Back in the U.S. during the four-year term of James K. Polk, the 11th president who served between 1845 and 1849, the Mexican-American War was won and the northwestern boundary with Canada was established, increasing the size of the U.S. by one-third. Polk sent a man named Aaron Palmer to survey the West Coast from California to Alaska. One of Polk's goals was to also find a shorter route for trade with China. In 1848, Aaron Palmer filed a report with President Polk describing the vast resources along the West Coast. Palmer also recommended importing inexpensive Chinese labor to that area. Based on all the upheaval overseas, there had to be some Chinese willing to come to America, right? This actually brings us to the gold rush. Gold had been discovered in California as early as January of 1848, leading to an influx of various groups from other countries. Mexicans, English, French, all descending on the West Coast in search of riches. One of those groups was Chinese, hoping for their chance at a better life after a decade-plus of strife. The gold rush, which wouldn't reach its peak until 1852, was a lawless and violent time. American miners fought outsiders over gold claims, driving out most of the foreigners. By the end of 1850, roughly 4,000 Chinese immigrants had arrived in San Francisco Harbor. Two years later, that number was 20,000. By the time the Chinese took to the hills outside San Francisco looking to take part in the gold rush, most of the other foreigners of other nationalities had been scared off by local miners. With the fields becoming more crowded and larger operations switching to machine mining, racial animosities toward the Chinese intensified. In 1861, there were roughly 35,000 Chinese in California. 
1862, two companies were chartered with building the Transcontinental Railroad with the Central Pacific Railroad Company starting out from Sacramento and continuing east across the Sierra Nevada, while the second company, the Union Pacific Railroad, building westward from the Missouri River near the Iowa-Nebraska border. According to Stanford University's Chinese Railroad Workers Project, the Central Pacific started with a crew that included 21 Chinese workers in January of 1864. This was back-breaking work from sunrise to sunset filled with injuries and death from accidents, and because it was the Wild West, the Union Pacific Railroad, the one headed west from the Missouri River, was frequently attacked by Native Americans, including members of the Sioux, Arapaho, and Cheyenne tribes, who likely felt threatened by the tearing up of their ancestral lands by the white man. Many of the white workers quickly bailed on the railroad and were not easily replaced by other whites who had heard of the difficulties. The man in charge of construction for the Central Pacific Line heading east, Charles Crocker, began hiring Chinese laborers in greater numbers in 1865. By then, roughly 50,000 Chinese immigrants were living on the West Coast, many having arrived during the gold rush, which had long ended. The Chinese workers proved themselves quickly, willing to take on the tasks the white workers would not. While the workforce of the Union Pacific was primarily Irish immigrants and Civil War veterans, by early 1867, the Central Pacific Line had approximately 14,000 Chinese working under brutal conditions in the Sierra Nevada. I should mention that Chinese workers were being paid 30 to 50 percent lower wages than whites doing the same jobs. The Chinese also had to buy their own foodstuffs, something that the whites did not. If you're keeping count, between 1860 and 1870, 30,000 Chinese came to the United States, bringing the Chinese population in America to around 63,000. Between 10,000 and 15,000, some estimates have it closer to 20,000, worked on the construction of the railroad, nearly four-fifths of the total workforce. In doing research for this episode, I read countless stories of Chinese men who came to the States in order to make money for their families. They were sojourners who planned to only be here temporarily before returning to their homeland. These immigrant workers would send money back to their wives and children, maybe get a chance to travel back to see them before returning to the States. There were many who rarely saw their families at all, and many who came to the States and died, their families never hearing from them again. With the signing of the Burlingame-Seward Treaty of 1868, Chinese immigration rules were eased, there's finger quotes there, which may sound pretty great, but many historians agree this was mainly created in order to keep trade favorable for the U.S. and to keep a steady supply of low-cost Chinese labor coming in. On May 10, 1869, the two sides of the railroad were joined in Promontory, Utah, 
There's a famous picture of the two sides with train engines nose to nose in the middle, surrounded by celebrating workers. The Chinese workers, so important to the entire effort, are not pictured. The United States entered a recession in the 1870s. Jobs were scarce, and unfortunately, Chinese immigrants who had worked so hard to develop the landscape and the development of America once again became the target of anger and racist attacks in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Sensing there might be opportunities elsewhere, the West Coast Chinese began to head east, looking to settle in places like Chicago. The Chinese who first came to Chicago found a mix of different ethnic groups and far less discrimination than they experienced in the West. Not non-existent, just less. They wrote to friends back in San Francisco and other West Coast cities and encouraged them to move here. Soon Chicago's Chinese community began to develop in an area around Clark and Van Buren streets in the South Loop. According to the Chinese American Museum of Chicago, records show there were two Chinese laundries in Chicago in 1872, and by 1926 there were 500. The first Chinese laundry in Chicago, according to historians, was at the back of 167 West Madison Street. The prevalence of laundries was simple. The startup costs were inexpensive, and the skills were easy to learn, and the services were in demand. There was not a lot of communication required, so that was one less hurdle for different ethnic groups to overcome. Chinese laundry workers often lived at the shop or in rooms above. Keeping a watchful eye on, some might say controlling, the area's residents were two organizations, the Anliong Merchants Association and the Hipsing Business Association. If you wanted to open a business in Chicago's Chinatown, one of these groups would help out. Had a problem with another merchant? These were the guys to step in and help sort out, more finger quotes here, the problems. These two groups didn't always see eye to eye, mind you. In April of 1882, as rumblings of an exclusion act against Chinese began to take form, Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper ran a caricature commenting on the impending Chinese Exclusion Act. In it, a Chinese man is seated outside the Golden Gate of Liberty next to a sign reading, Notice, Communist, Nihilist, Socialist, Fenian, and Hoodlum Welcome, but no admittance to Chinamen. On May 6, 1882, President Chester A. Arthur signed into law that unique piece of federal legislation referred to as the Chinese Exclusion Act, effectively singling out a specific race and nationality for exclusion here in the States. The Chinese Exclusion Act made it illegal for Chinese workers to come to the United States and also made it so Chinese nationals already on American soil had no path to become citizens of the United States. Uh, side note, it was one year later in 1883 that Emma Lazarus's famous sonnet, The New Colossus, would include the lines... Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Just as long as those huddled masses weren't Chinese, apparently. 
The Chinese Exclusion Act, as well as other restrictive measures that followed, essentially created a bachelor society among Chinese men by limiting the ability for Chinese women to enter the country. More on that in a moment. According to the U.S. National Census in 1880, there were 105,465 Chinese in the United States. Ten years later, in 1900, that number dropped to 89,863. By 1920, the number was down to 61,639, slightly less than it had been 50 years before at the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. One way around these restrictive measures was the eventual opportunity for Chinese to obtain merchant status by opening restaurants across the nation. This occupational niche helped them survive and even thrive during this era of exclusion. Once established as a merchant, the merchants could go back to China, then bring back additional essential workers. Those workers could be put in charge of operations until they, too, were classified as merchants. And the cycle, albeit slow, would continue. Many of these restaurants were truly upscale affairs with live music, lavish decor imported from China, creating an authenticity for those who dined there. In May of 1892, the Act to Prohibit the Coming of Chinese Persons into the United States, no ambiguity there, also referred to as the Geary Act, allowed Chinese laborers to travel to China and re-enter the United States. But its expanded provisions were in many ways more restrictive than preceding immigration laws. The Geary Act required Chinese to register with authorities and secure a certificate as proof of their right to be in the United States. The penalty for those who failed to have the required papers included imprisonment or deportation. Many refused to comply. The community near Clark and Van Buren in Chicago's original Chinatown continued to develop. By 1889, according to the Chicago Tribune, the area included eight grocery stores, two drug stores, two butcher shops, two barber shops, a cigar factory, and a restaurant. It would be another 20 years before the Canton Hotel opened, run by local Chinese. The 1893 World's Columbian Exposition was likely the first opportunity many Americans from outside the big cities had to experience Chinese culture and Chinese Americans in person. As China refused to take part in the World's Fair in protest of Chinese exclusion laws, a local Chinese family created a Chinese village that included a theater, a restaurant and tea house, a shopping area, and a Joss house, which is a Chinese place of worship. During the late 1890s, gambling raids were frequent in the original Chinatown, as were complaints of police corruption. Unfortunately, one of the negative elements of the old world that followed some Chinese to the States was the smoking of opium. Problems at opium dens were frequently reported in local papers. Prostitution was also present. Rampant racism and xenophobia toward Chinese in Chicago and other parts of the country continued. News articles ranged from not flattering to downright insulting. Stage plays of the day with names like 
King of the Opium Ring, and Chinatown Charlie played off horrible stereotypes and based on stories from local sources during that time. If you're a white woman in Chinatown, you were referred to in news stories as likely kidnapped or having narrowly escaped being sold into white slavery. The phrase yellow peril was frequently used when referring to those who lived in Chinatown. At 5.12 a.m. local time on Wednesday, April 18, 1906, a powerful earthquake struck San Francisco, California, causing massive devastation and fires that lasted days. 3,000 people died and more than 80% of the city was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of residents were displaced, including many of the Chinese community, a community all but devastated. The silver lining in this horrible disaster, many of the records regarding citizenship were lost, which made it slightly easier to come and go as officials could not prove who actually belonged there. Losing everything in the quake brought many east to Chicago. In June of 1909, the body of a young white woman was found in a trunk in New York's Chinatown. The woman had done missionary work at a Chinatown rescue settlement and had started a relationship with a Chinese waiter in a nearby restaurant and possibly a second Chinese man. Newspapers carried all these salacious details. Although neither of the Chinese men was ever charged and the woman's murder remains unsolved today, this set off another wave of anti-Asian sentiment across the country. Much was made of the white woman being the granddaughter of a Union general in the Civil War, and it likely did not help that the newspapers covering this sordid event played off all the xenophobia of the day with headlines like, Beautiful White Girl Who Labored Among Chinese brutally murdered, American girl garroted by her Chinese paramour, is deserted and slain by an oriental Lothario with whom she had fallen in love. On June 23, 1909, just days after the murder of the woman in New York, newspapers reported that Chicago police planned to, quote, clean out Chinatown, end quote, as a result of the murder. There were also indications that, quote, the territory is flooded with eastern Chinamen frenzied with excitement, end quote, and that many of the Chinese feared, quote, the whites are preparing to exterminate them, giving rise to applications for passports. By 1910, due to laws barring Chinese women from coming to the States, Chicago's Chinatown was primarily male. Sources show 1,719 males and only 65 females at that time. Without female companionship, many of the males would take in shows at the nickel theaters or go to cheap dance halls. Another popular pastime, gambling, which was a big part of the social scene. In 1911, the area around the original Chinatown on Clark Street began to change. Chicago was trying to clean up its image, and a push to move the local Chinese elsewhere through steep rent increases started. Plans were in the works for many residents of the Chinatown and Clark Streets, more specifically the businesses and families of the An Leong Merchants Association, to move south about two miles, an area with more space. Fifty-four properties were bought near 22nd Street and Wentworth through third parties, as Chinese were not allowed to purchase property at that time. 
There was also an effort proposed in late 1911 for the Chinese to move near 23rd and Wabash, just east of the area that is now Chinatown. But groups with names like the Wabash Avenue Protective Association organized against that effort as they viewed the migration of the Chinese, quote, as a real and immediate yellow peril, end quote. The Chicago City Council even passed an ordinance in December of 1911 to refuse construction and remodeling permits to people of Chinese descent around 23rd and Wabash. The reasoning was that, quote, the Chinese of the city of Chicago are invading said neighborhood and, quote, if they are permitted to settle in said neighborhood, it will materially affect and depreciate the value of the property, end quote. The person leading that effort, the notoriously corrupt bathhouse, John Coughlin, alderman of Chicago's First Ward. I am absolutely going to do an episode on that guy. I talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Geary Act earlier. These would be followed by further extensions and restrictions in 1904 and 1924. In 1943, the Magnuson Act, also known as the Chinese Exclusion Repeal Act, was passed during World War II when China was an ally to the U.S. against Japan. But it would take another 22 years for the 1965 Immigration Act to go into effect, lifting national origin quotas and removing limits on family reunification visas, granting Chinese immigrants equal status with immigrants from other backgrounds. All told, there were 15 Chinese exclusion laws enacted by the U.S. Congress between 1882 and 1943. That's 60 years. These laws denied Chinese immigrants the opportunity to become citizens, to bring their families to the states, and often denied them the chance to return to the states if they left. After the Anliang Merchants Association relocated from the South Loop to the current Chinatown area in the 1910s, the Hipsing faction stayed on Clark Street for several decades more. By the 1970s, that group decided they needed to move to another area, so they relocated to the North Side's Uptown neighborhood on Argyle Street. Although that area has been called Chinatown North, it actually has a higher population of Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian ethnic groups. Very little remains of Chicago's original Chinatown, according to Chicago cultural historian Tim Samuelson in a 2010 Time Out piece, quote, one of the last Chinese-related businesses in the old Clark Street Chinatown was a small restaurant that disappeared probably by the 1980s, end quote. The site of that restaurant at 406 South Clark Street currently houses a Mexican restaurant, although it appears they repurposed the sign of the old Chinese restaurant as it still has a pagoda top. It is one of the last remaining pieces of the early history of the Chinese in Chicago's original Chinatown. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Chicago's original Chinatown. 
Do you have any questions about anything covered today? Anything to add or have an idea for a future episode? I want to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about the topics discussed today, I'll have links in the show's notes. Anything you buy through those links will help benefit the show. I will have plenty of news clippings and photos. I'll post on social media throughout the week. If you are on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, please give us a follow. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.